Brian McCauley, successful mortgage advisor. Welcome to the High Key Podcast. Thanks, man. Appreciate you having me, bro. Yeah, of course. So in this episode, uh, I want to get into wealth creation, how to become financially successful, uh, maybe dive into home ownership and how people are becoming financially uh, free through home ownership. Uh, but first, let's let's dive a bit into your backstory, where you came yeah. from, so the audience can get a little context about who you are, where you came from, maybe some pivotal moments in your upbringing to get you to the place success that you're in right now. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. So uh, I'm in Dallas from Dallas, uh, Dallas Mortgage Man on all social accounts. Um, been in the mortgage game 18 years, dude. It's uh, it's literally all I've ever done. Uh, come from a great family, only child, uh, good and bad. Um, I got parents that are just incredible. They're still married 44 years in July. Good Christian people, good hearts. They're loving, took good care of me my entire life. Uh, we still have a tremendous relationship. So I'm super thankful for, um, for them and for the upbringing of the family. Um, you know, we weren't a wealthy family. We weren't poor. We were in the middle, uh, which was great, you know, because obviously I kind of got, you know, I got enough to, enough to live and survive and enough love, uh, but I didn't have anything handed to me. Um, but it was a good upbringing. Uh, they're really good parents. They see people through a great perspective. They did a great job with me. Uh, I love and appreciate them. And, and obviously that's part of who I am and kind of my care factor and my love for folks. And so, um, you know, I had no idea what the mortgage industry even was. Uh, went to school in Dallas, uh, went to college at Texas Tech. Um, I finished up literally Texas Tech December 2004. Moved back home and my pops was like, dude, you're not going to lay on the couch and go out and party every night. You got to get a job. Uh, and I'm like, okay, cool. Let me get a job to get my parents off my back and went to a recruiting firm, man. And the first job they had was a mortgage loan officer doing inside sales. I'm like, sure, whatever. Um, I was a finance major at tech. I've always been a numbers guy and a people person. So it kind of, it kind of stuck, but I did it in the beginning just to honestly get my parents off my back and make a little money. So I had a little money on the weekends to go to the club and go get beers and hang out. Um, and you know, got in it, got rolling and then, uh, the rest is history, which we'll talk about today. So that's kind of who I am, uh, my backstory and kind of how I got involved, man. Mm-hmm. So when did you like start falling in love with it? Cause like you said, you kind of just did it to get off the, get off the couch, get yeah. a little bit of money. So what was that? Like, what was that point where you were like, oh wow, this is actually like really interesting and like, I'm going to really pursue this and get after it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's interesting, man. So if anybody has ever seen the movie, The Big Short, it's all about the mortgage crash and the meltdown from 2008. So when I came into the game in 2005, um, I came in right in the thick of that. But when you're young and you're 23 and you don't know that, like, that's what you're walking into, you have no perspective on like good rules, bad rules, mortgage rules, all these things. And so in the beginning, it felt great because it's like, a lot of mortgage is conversation with people and sales and crunching numbers and helping people get to the finish line in a home. And so it was a natural connection for me. So I fell in love with the concept of the industry early uh, and, you know, had a little bit of success in the early years because it was easy to get a home loan. Everybody was rocking. I'm like, this is great. Starting to come into my own mid twenties. Then of course the bottom fell out, dude. And it was so weird because it was like, you know, again, you don't know that when you're young and you don't know that the rules are so weak and all this stuff shouldn't be happening because you're just in the thick of it. And we're getting emails daily like this bank shutting down, this bank shutting down. We can't do your loans. And it was like, oh, my gosh. And the bottom fell out quick, dude. Um, and so we're in the thick of it. I liked it. Uh, but when the thick of it fell and the bottom fell out, dude, it just crushed everybody, including me. Um, and I was still a licensed loan officer, but I had no loans. Uh, and I had to pick up a couple side jobs. I had to get a, a true salary job to make ends meet. Um, when all these foreclosures started happening, one of my boys started a company uh, and bought a truck and a trailer. And we were literally cleaning out the foreclosed homes um, just to make money and make ends meet. Dude. And I did that for like three or four months working long hours. And I just kind of had this weird this weird spot after like having three jobs and the industry was so tough and cleaning out trashy foreclosed homes. I was like, dude, I don't want to do this. Uh, I got to make a decision. Like, am I going to be the dude that stays in this mortgage industry and just takes it on? And do I beat it or do I let it beat me? And I just kind of had that moment of like, you know, tired of working a bunch of hours at a job I didn't want, didn't have any money. And I just told myself, like, let's just commit to learning the new rules and working hard and getting going and get through it. And so that mindset switch 
helped me get on the other side. It was a, it was a hard crawl, man, for a long time, but I got through it. Uh, I learned the stuff and then my work ethic is really just what propelled me to get some people to use me because there was nobody left. Uh, and so I just, I worked my way through it. Yeah. So what were, what were like the three biggest lessons you learned from going through the 2008 crash? Cause like, that was like huge, especially like you were kind of in the beginning, like you were in your first like yeah. years in the game and then that happened. Um, so I will tell you a couple lessons through that. So, so lesson number one is, is tough times don't last tough people do. Uh, and that's important to carry through anything, whether it's personal, professional, regardless of the industry. Uh, number two was really more of a mindset thing of like, you know, you can let something bring you down. Just don't let it keep you down. And I think if you can get around that mindset, uh, on your own, but also other people, um, my thing is always like, you know, don't listen to yourself, talk to yourself. What I mean by that is when people get in bad spots, they get quiet and they get these bad thoughts and they're listening to themselves. When you talk to yourself, like I can do this, I'll make this happen out loud. It changes the momentum and the direction that you go. Um, and then the third thing is just hard work straight up. Like, I don't care if you're 62 or you're 22, dude, if you're a hard worker and you put in the work, whether that's in your life, in the gym, in your profession, dude, hard work will, will get you through anything. Um, and so I've taken three of those lessons and I've applied them to pretty much everything in life from then until now. And most of the time they've cracked the code for me. Yeah, hundred percent. So specifically going into like mortgages and loans, like I know people yeah. don't know a lot. So specifically totally. like what you do, can you like break it down in terms of like those two categories and what, what it looks like in, uh, in your work from like what you did from the beginning to kind of like what you do now? Totally, man. So, you know, I mean, obviously mortgages are home loans, meaning like the easy concept for everybody is like, dude, if you're going to go buy something, anything, a t-shirt at the mall, a car, whatever it is, you have to pay for it. So you have two choices, paying cash or you got to finance it, right? So when you go to buy a house, you have two choices. Am I going to pay cash for the house or am I going to get a home loan from a mortgage company and a bank so I can finance this sucker so I can get myself into it, make the payments, you know, sell it later for more money, all of that. So, I mean, that's essentially what I do on the residential side. So it's not the commercial side, like buildings and stuff. It's all homes, anything that's a residential home, condo, high rise, rental property, lake house, primary home. If someone's not paying cash and they need a mortgage, uh, I'll take great care of them. And so that's, that's where I come into play. That's what I do. Um, I'm also a certified planner. Uh, it took me two years to get certified on that. And so I go a little deeper than just helping people get home loans, you know, uh, loans are something that I do. Helping people create wealth through home ownership is what I like to do. Um, cause it's all about the money management and moving things around and helping people understand like people fall in love with, you know, the house and getting the keys and they'll get a mortgage. But I try to work through, you know, budgets with people and show them how to save money and make money. And, you know, homes like stocks over a long period of time, they always go up. So you have to show people like it's a good investment. Your return on investment will be there for a long period of time. Yes, there are small dips, but they're small in time. And the ROI goes up just like stocks over a period of time. So I try to show people that outside of just getting the home loan piece. And so when people come to me, most of my business is, you know, realtors, uh, financial planners, divorce attorneys, CPAs and past clients um, that are either new or recurring. And so I just try to put them in the best position possible when getting a home loan, but also from a finance standpoint, just to, just to help people create wealth, man, because money is just a game. It's just a chessboard. There are pieces everywhere. And, you know, people don't know a whole lot when it comes to that. And so, you know, all of the stuff that I've learned, I try to pay it forward to clients and partners to show them the right way to get a mortgage. Mm. So what are some of like the best strategies to create wealth through home ownership? Yeah, I think the, I think there's a couple easy things that people can do. So one is when, when you're buying a house, it's important, but people should run a personal budget every single month. I am shocked how many people don't like have at least a little spreadsheet or something that says like, here's exactly what my monthly payments are. Here's what I need to make. Here's what I need to save. Here's exactly where they need to go. No one has a roadmap. They're just kind of off the cuff, right? And so if you don't have a map and if you don't have a plan and you're not tracking all your stuff with a budget... How do you know good and bad debt? How, how do you know how much you're spending? How much do you need to save? Like I was taught a while back to get an end number. 
that end number is, hey, you know, how many millions of dollars do you need to have saved in order to make enough compound interest every single month in order to, you know, make that interest be X amount of thousands of dollars a month to pay for all your bills? So let's say, for example, $10 million liquid, if you put it in an interest bearing account, that would make $40,000 per month just in the interest. And that $40,000 is what somebody lives off of. So all I do is chop that up and say, okay, hypothetically, if I need 10 million bucks and I'm going to work for the next 20 years, I got to save $500,000 per year. That's X amount per month. So then therefore I have to make this much per month. And if my expenses are this per month, this is where I need to be. So that budget and that dartboard and that plan is what I put people on small, big, short-term, long-term. And then the thing about houses is literally they appreciate, at least in Texas, on average of like 5% a year. So if somebody buys a $500,000 house and they live in it for four years, they're going to make $100,000 off the appreciation alone. Um, so you show people like, you know, this is, a, this is an asset that goes up over time. You're going to make money on your money versus like a car. It's an asset, but cars historically go down over time and you don't get tax deductions on a car payment. You get tax deductions on a mortgage payment, which means you get money back on your money. So showing people how to run a personal budget, good debt and bad debt, ways to help them understand how to have a roadmap and a plan so there's an end in sight so you don't end up broke or stuck are just things that we try to do to help people understand big picture outside of just get them in a home. Yeah. So what, what do you think are some of like the biggest issues that uh, you know, you've seen that people come to you with when wanting to buy a home? You know? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So the mortgage industry as a whole, especially if you're a first time buyer or you haven't got a mortgage in five or 10 years, you know, the regulation is really, really, really uh, extensive in my industry. So because of the subprime crash, what happened was it was way, way, way too easy to get a home loan. And then the government overcorrected it since then. And so now it's really, 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 really hard to get a loan. There's a bunch of paperwork. It's really invasive. So what happens is um, the biggest thing that most people finance before they get a home is a car, right? 50 grand car, 70 grand car, 100 grand car, whatever. So when you go buy a car, it's super easy. Dude, you pull up into the lot, you talk to the salesman, you find your car in an hour or two, you walk in, talk to the finance guy or girl, they take care of your paperwork in 30 minutes, like five hours, you go from new customer to drive off the lot and a new whip and you're super happy. So it feels to a consumer when they're going to do that, well, a house should be the same thing. It's not. So the auto industry has very little regulation. That's why you can get in and get out quick. The mortgage business has so much regulation because of the crash. It takes a while to get approved. It takes a while to get a house and get things going. So the biggest thing I try to tell people is say the mortgage industry is super invasive. They want all your tax returns, your W-2s, your bank statements, the money going in, the money going out, all these things. Right. And it's not a mortgage company thing. It used to be a mortgage company thing back in the day, and all those mortgage companies didn't do right, so they all went under. The government stepped in, injected it, propped it up, and said, now we're going to write the rules, and they made it super, super tough. So I tell everybody, like, the right thing to do is, you know, get with somebody, obviously, that has experience, that knows what they're doing, but regardless of where you go, be prepared because people don't understand why everybody's digging into all their junk and all their information and try to figure it out. It's because the government has these restrictions and rules on home loans. So we got to dig in and make sure that we abide by the guidelines and set people up for success so they can get a loan. I just try to do it in a way that everybody understands and feels like, dude, I'm good cop. I'm on your side. No one's trying to deny your loan. I'm trying to make it right for you and make it a good experience all the way through. But the key and the secret to the mortgage industry is just communicating and getting all the paperwork up front for the first two or three days. Get the hard part out of the way. Eliminate all the risk. Because if you don't and you do some of it and you get under contract on a house and then you give the rest of it later and there's some drama or some problems on the paperwork, it can cause you to lose the house. dude. It can cause you to, you know, not close on time, or if, even if you close, it's a bad experience. Um, there's a statistic that comes out every five years through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, those government entities that people hear on TV, that over 65% of home loans do not close on time, or if they close late, the, the people say they had a terrible experience with the lender or with the agent. 
And people always wonder, like, how's that possible? And I'm like, dude, it's all the documents and everything. So, you know, just be prepared. It's like a job interview. Just get your paperwork ready. Make sure you know what's up. Talk to somebody that's been in the industry for a while that will help you and guide you uh, and set you up for success. But that's the number one thing that I see that people underestimate or don't know. And then I get literally calls every single week that are rescue loans. Brian, these people went through this online bank, this internet lender, whatever it is. They said they were pre-called and pre-approved, and then they called them a week before they're supposed to close and said it was de- denied. It's because either they don't do the right stuff up front or the guy or girl they're working with just didn't know what they were doing all the way. And they got caught up later in the guidelines and they had an issue and it fell through. And so it stinks that that happened so much in my industry and it's super, super tough. But the key to crack the code, man, is get with somebody that knows what's up and do all your paperwork up front. Yeah. That honestly kind of goes with everything, right? Like if you're like, if you need a lawyer, then like just get a lawyer that knows all the stuff and then they can help you in that way, right? So it's very similar in this industry. So what what would you say to like people that that are kind of looking at multiple different types of investments? Obviously buying a home uh, from your standpoint is a really good investment. So like, what would you say to people? Because like there's so many different types of investments, especially younger people come into the game, right? They might have a good income and they're looking at like, you know, stocks or, you know, crypto, yeah. which is like a lot easier to invest in. You just throw some money into an exchange and boom, you're uh, you're on a meme coin or you're on Bitcoin or whatever. So like, what, what advice would you give to them in terms of looking at it from a strategic standpoint? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think everything, regardless if you're young or old, it's all about your risk tolerance. Meaning like, dude, you can transfer money into whatever and buy Bitcoin or whatever in 10 seconds, but there, there, there's a risk tolerance to it. Meaning at any second, the bottom could fall out. But my best piece of advice for anything, not just investments, but money management, whatever is dude, get around people that are wealthy people that have experience that know what's up. They can take you through the A to Z on each one and explain to you the truth behind it. Because especially with youth, uh, with digital stuff and internet and TikTok and everything else going bananas here and there, there's so much information all the time that, you know, most of it's good, but some of it's bad. Uh, and you got to get around seasoned folks. I call it the bigger pile theory, which is like, whoever makes more money than you, you need to lean into them and chat with them and figure out the secrets and the details and specifics of what made them wealthy, what to do and what not not to do. And then look at historical data. Historical data is what investments over time always make you money. The S&P, the stock market, real estate, right? This is where millionaires and billionaires make all their money. So it's tried and true. It might not be quick, but it's going to hit. And so get around folks that have some experience and know what's up. If you're wanting to do more short-term stuff, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just your risk tolerance. Do some research, uh, get as much information as you can and try to, you know, try to flush the toilet, meaning like try to do some stuff from start to finish to figure out like what's all there, you know, who's in charge of it. Can I get my money out? Where are other people that have invested in this before and say like, Hey, is this real or not? You know, what's your ROI? Did you run into any issues? Do as much little research and, touch and go as you can, can, can up front. But the, the best advice is just get around people that are further down the path that make and have money, uh, get advice from them and they'll lead you in the best direction normally. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good. That's really good. Um, well, what would you say to people? Uh, I guess that could go for us as well. Like, I mean, we're, we're just renting uh, and we've been doing that just for kind of uh mobility purposes and being able to like, you know, go to different places easily and stuff and just not have to like have a house locked in. Like what advice would you give to people putting money into rent instead of buying a home? Yeah. I mean, so, so there's a couple things on rent, right? So the the first thing I want to say is home ownership is a privilege. It's not a right. Um, It helps people create wealth quickly. And so you have to be mentally and financially prepared to own a house. Um, renting is okay. I just don't think rent is good long-term. It's not a long-term way to create wealth. I tell everybody, when you are renting, you were paying a mortgage. You're just not paying your own. Your landlord loves you because you're paying down their mortgage. They're getting the appreciation and they're getting the tax deductions. So renting is okay temporarily, but it shouldn't be your long-term play. Renting is good for certain scenarios. People that can't qualify or financially aren't ready for homeownership. People that are on the move, like y'all, maybe that are not in one place all the time. Um, you know, people that love the renting lifestyle for social or something temporarily right now. Um, but also, like, if people aren't going to be in one place for a long period of time, and maybe you buy a place, but you look on the back end at short term and midterm rentals, Airbnbs, midterm rentals like nursing or sober living or things like that. So if you buy 
and you're going to be there short term and you uproot, you convert it from your primary home where you're at now into some form of rental, short term, midterm, long term. So what happens is you do the same thing that people are doing now, which is, hey, I might buy this place for a year or two and live there, but I don't want to sell it when I'm done. So let me look at rentals right now, which is if I turn this into a short term, midterm or long term rental, how much money can I get off this? As long as you can cover your mortgage payment and some, then you can buy it, live in it, pay it down, let it start to go up. And then your exit plan is I'm going to get out but I know what I'm going to replace it with to have somebody else pay my note. So they're paying it down. If you can get some positive cash flow on top of it, great. But I think just having somebody pay your note down and break even every month is a win because it costs you no money. They're paying down the note. You get the tax deductions. You're getting four or 5% appreciation a year. That's a win. It's like saying some investors want to make five or, you know, $800 a month on cash flow. I'm like, I don't have to make cash flow if I break even. Like, if somebody just pays your car payment every month until it's done, that's a win. Same thing on a home. Like, if somebody just pays your mortgage payment for four, five, six years, that's a win. So, the renting piece is okay. It just can't be a forever thing. Um, it can be for a lifestyle thing or people that aren't ready, but at some point, you got to hunker down, get you a place, even if it's not going to be a forever home for you. No one exit strategy, convert it, let somebody else get in there, pay your stuff down, let it appreciate, sell it. You get a bunch of money and that helps you compound your wealth. Boom. There it is. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm interested. I kind of want to go through like your journey to financial freedom. Like if you yeah. if you're like break down, you know, the strategies that you took yourself from, you know, where you were as a 23 year old getting into the mortgage game. 2008 crash hit, you were kind of down bad. And then like, what was the strategies and, you know, things that you put in place to get to that uh, place of financial freedom? Yeah. Excellent question, man. So, so let me answer this two ways. So the first way when you're young, all the way until you get older, until you get a lot of money, uh, your biggest wealth tool is income. Your income will create the most for you. And then what happens is after a long period of time, you get your income up, your income is really, really good. And then you get the money that you have into places that make money for you. Okay. Um, so people should focus on their income. How do I get my income up? Your income is your biggest earner. That'll get you over the hump the most. That'll get you the most savings, liquid investments here and there. And you have all these buckets and they start making money for you every single month. Um, but where I came into this whole path is luckily for me, about six years ago, I ran into a professional coaching co company called The Core. Um, and it is a professional coaching company that coaches mortgage people and realtors on how to literally uh, prospect, grow a team, um, pay back to others, run a business, make money, save money, give all this. And it is a full circle like sales, culture, grow a team, environment, full plan, make money, save money. Here's what to invest in. Here's what not to uh, and I'm still in it. And they have these just awesome professional coaches. So it, it, it'd be like a, you know, a Grant Cardone for this over here. There's just a bunch of those people that are like, have already been down the same path as me and everyone else. They're already at the pinnacle and they're just coaching and paying it forward to all the people that are underneath them that don't know as much and aren't there yet. So luckily that coaching program uh, really put me in line with just um, how to run my business, how to prospect, how, how to take better care of clients, how to build a team, systems, metrics, and that helps you start to earn good money. And then you want to expand and help others, but then you take the money that you start making and paying off your debt and then investing over here and letting it compound here and there. So I started that journey six years ago. It's been very, very helpful, uh, but that's kind of part of what I try to help teach clients and partners is a little piece of that. So there's a little bit more to what I helped them with and just like getting a home loan and getting keys to a house. But that's where it started for me. Um, I follow it pretty much to a T every single month. Uh, but it's also nice too to get around, you know, the community at the core. There's like uh, 40 coaches in the country and about 500, 100 students. It's the community of people nationwide that just are so smart and they're such A players in every game. And you just sit around campfires and you know, do calls like this and get together at these big summits tw twice a year. And there's just no question that you can ask them that they can't answer when it comes to business or script or taking better care of a teammate or how about investing in this and stuff. And so it's really, really cool. I encourage everybody, obviously, they don't have to get in the core unless they're in lending or an agent. And I would obviously encourage that. But find some coaching program out there 
that can guide you in the right direction. That'll help you make more money, but, you know, also show you how to save and invest more as well. Mm. So what, what was your strategy to finding uh, a coaching program like that? Cause like, as you know, like there's tons of programs, there's yeah. tons of mentors, you know, there's tons of gurus, some good, some bad that, you know, people, people sometimes have trouble finding a specific group or a specific community that's going to work yeah. for them and not against them. And so is yeah. there like a strategy or like, you know, some vetting process that you had to find the right program for you? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, I would say whatever industry that someone's currently in, there's a coaching program that works and there are people that have been in that industry before that are further down the path. So I would just, I would start there first. Like, Hey, if you're in marketing, you know, what's the marketing company that's been around forever, that's tried and true that people can, you know, have been going to for 20 years. Uh, you know, you can just have those conversations and look online. I mean, in a world that everybody's a coach and a mentor and stuff here and there, you know, not everybody's an all-star. Um, make sure there's depth there. Make sure you can talk to people, get evidence of success. How I found the company that uh, coached me was actually um, a CEO uh, who's one of my friends now found me because he heard about me in Dallas and said, dude, you're, you're killing the game, but you're a one man army. Meaning like you're going to, you're going to fall apart. If you keep working like this, let me show you a better way. There's a coaching company that shows you how to like, build your business and grow teams and help you with leads. Almost like, you know, whenever a doctor comes out of medical school, they hire a couple of nurses right away. Whenever a lawyer comes out of law school, they get a paralegal, right? Like they immediately build teams. It would be weird if like the doctor, doctor answered the phone and checked the vitals and diagnosed and prescribed. And to, it's like, you know, they, they have it all set up in my industry. It's really confusing. And the loan officer normally does everything. So this company, um, basically has a better business model into the system. But a CEO found me, introduced me to the core. I didn't believe it. I was like, there's no way. Because like a really good loan officer, guy, girl, no matter if they've been in the business two years, five years, eight years, whatever, like if somebody's amazing, they can close like 10 loans a month. They're amazing. Average person, like two or three. I went to this thing in 2016 and the top guy in there that was a loan officer closed 88 deals in one month. And I was like, in my mind, I'm like, and I've been in the business 12 years. I'm like, there's no way. There's no way. There's no way in the world. These people have to be like committing fraud. They're going to end up on American greed. Like, I know, I don't believe them. And so when I left, I mean, it was mind blowing and I didn't believe it for a while. And then I went back to a second one because they have two a year and it was just in my blood. And then I just started sitting down with people like that were me just 10 years down the path of like, is this real? And they're like, yeah. And so I bought into the program, got it all done. And sure enough, it's as real as it gets and it's helpful as it gets. So just the the takeaway for people that are looking for coaches is like, do research, see how long people have been in the business. You know, one of the great things about this industry uh, and this coaching program is they check your financials. I mean, I have to send my tax returns and my W-2s and stuff into them to make sure I qualify, to make sure I'm earning, to make sure I'm managing stuff here and there. So there's checkpoints and accountability checkpoints that you can do up front, but also throughout the process to make sure that who you're talking to and what you're getting is tried and true. Um, but just, you know, get around people in your industry that are more successful than you and ask these questions. They should point you in the direction of coaching programs and mentors that are tried and true to make sure that you don't get caught up in something that looks good, but it's not actually good. Mm. So, so how, how much do you think it accelerated your growth being in those programs and with the coaches? It's hard. It's a great, it's a, it's, it's hard to say specifically from like a metric or percentage standpoint. I will tell you that, um, the team that I had when I started was four people. Now we have 18. Um, we got as big as like 20 something. We scaled back down on some market corrections, unfortunately, but I, I would say from a, a business standpoint, volume at least four or five X, at least four or five X within In what, five, or six years. Five, six, five or six years. Yeah. Because the hardest part about it is in the beginning, because the truth is it's all new information and you have to break your bad habits. That's the hardest part. So when you get coached, it's like if Nick Saban or Phil Jackson or any of these people that are the best co coaches in the world, you know, they're amazing at what they do and win titles all the time because they've got a playbook and it freaking works. 
And they know because they've got five championships, 10 championships, whatever. When you're a professional coach, you get all these people in that don't know any better and you have to break all their bad habits. Like you can't do everything, all these things. And you have to get people out of their bad habits. It's like somebody being addicted to something bad. Like it takes a long time to break them off of that. Once you can break them off of that and get them to bind the program fully and see it the other way, then you start to turn the corner. But it takes a while to you know get people that don't know what they're doing to course correct, follow your lead, buy in, surrender, right? And then get on track. And so in the beginning, it's really hard to break that. And then you look back now and I'm like, gosh, how did I ever do business any other way? I mean, it's like a restaurant. Like I was the host, I was the waiter, I was the owner, I was the janitor, I was the cook. And that's what people are guilty of all the time and entrepreneurs and getting everything done. They're running around like a chicken with their head cut off. And even though they might get things done better, it's just not scalable and you can't grow. And so um, it's helped me tremendously. I don't know how I did it without them and without the coaching, but at the time, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Was, was there any other like influences or like books or, you know, things that kind of changed your, your mindset allowed you to move faster? Yeah. I mean, I've always been a guy that's like, you know, looked up to people that were successful. I love championship athletes. Like I love Brady. I love Jordan. I love Mayweather. I love Tiger. I've always had this desire of like, God, these people are so elite. They just, you know, they commit to their craft so much that like they, they give away a lot of their, a lot of their life to something because they believe in it and they focus on it so much because they're so committed mentally to being the greatest that it doesn't matter what they have to do, they'll do it. And so I've always loved that, admired that about anybody, athletes, uh, coach, you know, you name it, uh, Elon Musk, all these people, like they're just, they're a different species. So I've always followed and, and had that piece and I've liked it. Um, the coaching piece helps, but even now, I mean, there's so many books that I read and so many people that I look up to, but you know, I follow so many people online still. I mean, all the people, you know, in the world that are out there that, you know, are, are the, are the, the great salespeople of the world, the motivators of the world, the great leaders. Uh, I probably read a new prospecting book or a story book or some type of like good business book or leadership book uh, every other month. So it's a constant drip and drain on myself to make sure that I'm top grading um, all the time. Um, but, you know, I just I just honestly, man, I look up to winners. I look up to people that just are committed to excellence um, and I try to just follow what they do. I mean, that's that's a big thing that I would tell people is there was one of these coaches, uh, his name was Todd um, at the time. He's like, dude, you know, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You just get somebody else's playbook and you copycat it and you put your spin on it and you learn. And so it's like, that's the thing about being successful and being in society. You know, somebody else has done it. There's a blueprint out there, whether it be to be a successful mortgage guy, whether it be to be a great golfer, whether it be a CEO, whatever, like somebody else has done it. And what you should do is just get up underneath them or people like them and get the playbook and just follow it quickly, make it your own in your own way. But the blueprint for most things, uh, regardless of who or whatever you look up to, it's out there. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's, that's really good. It's really good. Yeah. Um, so let's uh let's let's jump ahead to the present. So like where where are you right now and like where are you trying to go in the next five years? Yeah. Um, you know, so right now we've got uh you know two branches, uh Dallas and Lubbock. We've got about 18 people, uh probably do 150 to 200 million this year. Um that's really good growth in the mortgage industry. That's that's a lot of production. Um I'm super thankful for the team. You know, what is happening in my career right now at my age, year 18, making it all happen. Uh, it's starting to turn the corner. You know, in, in the beginning, it's about your money, your success and growth. Then you get to a spot to where it starts to be about other people's money, other people's success and other people's growth. And I'm trying to create that platform, uh, which is, you know, how can I grow this thing and get it in a position to where I can set the stage for everyone else to make sure that their careers are awesome, to make sure that they can be who they want to be, put this vision out there, make sure that I've got a even a one, three and five year vision, a plan and a roadmap. So people know the metrics and the checkpoints and the details and all that, because I want to create that for other folks um, to put them on, to shine the light on. So that's where my head's at. 
um, you know, where I'm heading in the future. Right now we're do, doing great, but I'm always trying to figure out how to make things better. I'll tell people bigger is not better, but better sometimes can be bigger. So if you want to run a restaurant, and it's a five-star steakhouse. Like if you get too big, it can be, be tough. P- people should focus on better all the time, more efficient about the client, better experience, always happy. Focus on those things. You'll naturally get bigger because when you're that good and they're that much better, you're going to naturally get more demand. So I'm focused on that piece of the the business now, but I'm thinking about how I can grow this platform and expand it in scale so I can help others and secure their future as well, uh, which is where my mindset and my focus is at right now. Yeah. Do you think you become more successful by focusing on others in, in that way? Yeah, I, I, it's yes. So the short answer is yes. I think just it, it's the giver's gain, which is a great book. Um, it's like the more you give, the more you gain. And I think that just comes with time. I think it comes with maturity. I think it comes with trial and tribulation. But I also think it, right, it comes around getting around people that are more successful than you and they know better and they have more experience. They're not going to say, like, do more for yourself. They're going to say, solve other people's problems and focus on other people. That in turn is going to get you further, but don't focus on where it's going to get you. Focus on them, focus on their stuff, focus on their problems, and that'll get you further down the path. And there's a lot more gratitude in that too, when you're helping others versus just like focusing on you. Yeah. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I agree. Well, what were, what were like your favorite, most memorable adversity points in your journey? Right. And I say favorite because like when you get through those adversity points, they usually become like core memories. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the biggest one was the subprime crash. I mean, that was just a really, I mean, that was like, you know, you look back, I mean, that was a planet meltdown, dude. It's, it messed up so many things here and there. That pivotal, that pivotal time, especially early, you know, when you're young and you're probably not mentally as tough as you, sh- as I am now, and you don't have the experience getting through that was big. Um, you know, some, some, some moments uh, that caused some correction, even last year, last year and the year before, I mean, it started to get tough. I mean, you all know that rates went from like 3% to like 7% in like less than a year. And it caused a lot of problems in our industry. And a lot of people have gotten laid off. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people in some bad spots. So that was very similar um, to the 2008. It wasn't as bad. Uh, but it happened quick and it was pretty deep. And I really had to fight through that and course correct quickly. Luckily, because we are uh, a great team and we're experienced, we knew how to navigate and pivot much faster and get it all done. That was a deep spot uh, to course correct. But, you know, there are also some small wins along the way, man. Um, You know, there's nothing better than working really hard and starting to have success and people on the outside world start to recognize you and, you know, say, hey, man, this person's great and I want to call you and so and so gave me your name and blah, blah, blah. And so you pick up those small wins along the way. Those are pivotal moments as well. So I think there's always like some pain that causes you to remember and say, "Okay, I don't want to be here again. And there's some gain, which is like. I'm doing good. People are recognizing I'm helping a lot of people. I'm starting to come on and this feels good. I want more of this. So how do I grow and serve others? And so there's been spots like that. Uh, one of the really good spots that I like that I remember is, you know, whenever I did a hundred million in home loans, my first time, it's such a big number and it's really hard to get to. And so I was very thankful for that. Um, and then, you know, watching other people hit their milestones, like watching people on our team saying, Hey, what's your personal goal to buy a new truck this year? Okay, great. I'm going to make sure you hit that. How much is the truck? And then I work them to get all that stuff. Hey, you want to get, you know, a house? Cool. I'm going to make sure we work hard to get you that house and get a down payment. And so these are, these are pivotal moments as well. They're not always negative. They're, they're positive, but they propel me just as hard, but it's just a, a different emotion. Mm. So when did you start implementing that? Like, uh, kind of listening to other people's goals and doing that. Cause like, that's a strategy that I was thinking of as well. And something that it is, you know, I started allows, about, it allows you to connect on a deeper level. I feel like. Yeah, because I started about four year, year, years ago and that comes from my coaching, which is like, Hey dude, the people you work with, these are your teammates. You're in the huddle. It's not just about doing the work all day. Find out like, what do they want to do, do this year? So something, I there was one girl on the team that, you know, uh, what she wanted is that she needed to get LASIK and she couldn't afford it. So I'm like, cool. If we hit this metric, I'll pay for your, LASIK. We hit it together and I paid for it. And so like, that's the part I'm talking about, paying attention to other people, solving their problems, helping here and there. And so these are things like figuring out people's love language is the simplest thing ever, but it's the way they like to be rewarded. 
And you don't think about that. So most people reward in the way they like to be rewarded. So if you like money and somebody does something well, you might give them a hundred bucks and think like, oh my gosh, why aren't you happy? I gave you a hundred bucks. Well, meanwhile, their love language might not be gifts. It might be quality time. It might be words of affirmation. It might be acts of service. So like learning someone's love language, like I encourage everybody watching this, if they're in business, find out what your yours is, find out what your teammates are or whatever. But a fun thing is, dude, if you're in a relationship and you don't know what your love language is and you don't know what your spouse's is, here's a great 10 minute fun deal. You and your spouse get online, do the love language test, guess, write down what you think yours is, write down what you think your spouse's is, take it together. It'll tell you what it is. See how close you are. I bet you that you're off. And then you'll know what that person's is. And moving forward, you'll start to reward and give back to your person in their love language. So if they like words of affirmation, it's like, hey, Jackson, great job. Yeah, you might like a gift. You might like a hundred bucks, but that's the top thing here and there. So things like that, personal goals, love language, what makes them feel good, move the needle. These are things you learn over time that move the needle for people more. And this is professional coaching telling me like, hey, it's not just about hitting the hundred million. It's not about closing these loans. Like your people need to be served and taken care of in the right way. And the right way is to ask, take tasks, then take notes and serve them and take care of them in those areas which is where I'm getting and where I'm going, not only for our teammates, but for future teammates that I don't have yet, but to be able to serve them at a higher level. Wow. Yeah. That, that's amazing. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't heard someone use the love language for teammates outside of relationships. Cause I know it has kind of a bad connotation towards like, Oh, it's just like, no dude, everybody on our team has their job, their role and responsibility They have their love language on a little ID card, like a picture frame. So if Jackson's was words of affirmation, you did something good. I also want the teammates when they walk by Jackson's desk to remind that his is words of affirmation. So if you're going to reward him, you don't need to give him, uh, you know, a Nike shirt as a gift. He might like that. Great. But his number one is words of affirmation. So when you reward him, say, Jackson, great job. We appreciate you. You're awesome. That's his one. So if I have ladies in here that like gifts and they do awesome, they get flowers. If somebody else likes quality time, then it's like their reward is they get a half a day off work. And all these things matter because you start pushing the right buttons when you figure all this stuff out about others. So that's why I think the love language test is really, really good professionally, but I think it's good personally. I think people should take it together as a fun game. It takes 10 minutes and you'll think like, Dang, my wife likes acts of service. She'd rather me take out the trash and walk the dog than get her flowers. Now, she likes flowers too, but if I'm trying to get to her heart, I need to give acts of service all the time. And so she likes that, but it also shows I'm paying attention to you. I'm aware I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing for you. And it builds a better connection personally and professionally. Damn, Brian out here saving relationships. Dude, this is professional coaching. I'm telling you, man they've helped me with so many things and it's my duty and my obligation to pay it forward and let everybody know, but it all just creates a better culture and environment too, you know, because work is tough, man. We all work, people grind. It doesn't matter what type of personality you are, D and I and S or a C, like people give a lot of their life in America to their work. And so like in the workplace, we got to make it better. We got to make it better. It's got to be sticky. You got to have culture. You got to have nachos. You got to high five. You got to know the love language. Like you got to make it a place to where like, People have more than just going to work on a paycheck. There's got to be autonomy. There's got to be mastery. There's got to be a purpose. There's got to be a vision, all these things. But the love language thing is a little undercover secret for business owners and for relationship people to make sure you're doing it right. Mm. Wait, what were the letters that you just said? A a DISC test. So a DISC test, D-I-S-C, it's a personality test. So this is something else that you can do. And have everybody take one and it tells you what type of person they are. And based on what type of person they are in their personality test, it tells you like what their normal behavior is, what they like and they don't like, and what like role and responsibility best fits them. So an example would be like um, a tall, skinny person is better fit to be a center in the NBA than they are a guard. A short, fast, good handler person is a better guard than they are an NBA center. Same concept, right? So a, a six foot guy shouldn't play center. A seven one lanky skinny guy shouldn't play guard because they don't have the handles and the agility piece. So a disc test says like somebody like me, that's a high D with a lot of drive and an A and they're fast, 
They need to be on the sales side, talking to people, hanging out, getting it done all the time. Somebody with an S or a C, they're kind of quiet. They like stability. They like comfort. So they might be more of like an admin, um, salary, clerical person. So you don't want to put like a wide receiver where they're supposed to be a running back and a center where they're supposed to be a guard. So when you have businesses and stuff as well, taking personality tests and finding out about who they are is important because you want to put them in places where they're going to succeed. And natural roles say like, D's are really good here. I's are good here. S's are good here. C's are good here. So you don't mix and match and have like the wrong people at the wrong positions. It's it's the same as the love language test. It's just more about the personality and their skill sets and kind of who they are and what they like and how they're supposed to fit into uh, the whole outline of the team. Mm. Have you heard? Have you heard of the Enneagram? I have. I've never taken it. Uh, that's one of the few that I haven't. The Wonderlick test is really really good as well. Kind of like the Wonderlick is you know if you're on an island stranded all by yourself, how are you going to survive? And it tells people like if they get in a pinch, instead of like reaching out to YouTube or calling th- their mom, like, no, 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 you're on a remote island. I want to see how you survive. So all these tests are really good um, because they show you who people are and how they move and what triggers them and what they like and they don't like early. So you don't get somebody into the huddle or date somebody or whatever and find out later. So these are tips that I learned through coaching and they always come true, man. Mm. So you, you think it'll, it, it should almost be a part of like the hiring process or like the totally. process in dating. Like you're, you're going through those things. Dude, like it is a, them to a, to a T hundred percent. So it is a course that they teach called hiring and training an army of warriors, how to do it and not do it. And it's take these tests, ask these 50 questions. If this is it, this will be a problem. If they say no, this will be a problem here and there. You're literally dating these people up front to make sure like, here's something in theory. So um, especially post COVID, the further away that somebody lives from the office, the more likely they are to quit because if they've got to drive a long way, it becomes a hindrance on them. And so if you live far from the office and you've got to get up and fight traffic 45 minutes each way, every single day, even if you make good money, even if you like your people, the likelihood of that person quitting or getting picked off is better than if somebody works 10 minutes from the office or they get to work remote two or three days because their quality of life is better. These are just one of 50 questions, but all these things are part of a course, right? Um, so it's kind of like when you're dating somebody like you do, you go on four or five dates and you're like, so tell me about you and how many boyfriends and girlfriends you had. And tell me about your parents and blah, blah, blah. You know, really, really quick, like red flag or all good, pretty quick. It's the same concept just in business and they give you this and it's a course that you take. And sure enough, if you skip steps or you don't ask, there always ends up being a problem and it falls to that. If you do everything up front, most of the time, it's not that there's not going to be problems. We're humans. There are always problems, but they're mostly not deal breaker problems. And all this will prevent that up front. Wait, so where is this course and how much is it? So this course is part of my coaching program that they teach us. It's not available to the public, but if somebody wants to hit me up and ask about it, I'm happy to give it to them for free. They can reach out to me. I'll give them the interview questions here and there, but they're just simple concepts and questions around people's lives. What motivates them? Where do they want to be? Things like that, that you just find out more about them. Because everybody during the interview process, too, you're just you're interviewing their PR person. Everybody's going to say like, yeah, I love people. I mean, they're not going to not do it. But asking these specific questions and then having people take this test, it finds out more. Because the truth is, you want to find out. Just find out early. That's amazing. All right, Brown, I'm going to have to take that test from you after this. <laughs> For sure, dude. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's, let's, go, let's go more to the economic side. Do you think that there's going to be a worse crash than the 2008 coming up? What a great question. So uh, this is what I think without being too controversial and political. All markets are local. People need to realize that. So what happens in Dallas is not the same as Houston. It's not the same as Tampa. It's not the same whatever. So you get these national headlines that are like blah, blah, blah. Yeah, in theory, you know, there's debt going on. There's inflation overall here and there. But most markets specific to real estate, mortgage, whatever, they're local. Like Dallas, it's, dude, it's hot. It's booming. 
The reason it's great is because it's very friendly economically, like there's no state income tax there. It's really easy to open a business here. Uh, you know, people are friendly. The weather is good. It's a good sports place. And so with COVID and political division, people are migrating a little bit to places that they connect with better. No matter what side you're on, no matter what you believe, there's this migration to certain places. So a lot of people are coming to Dallas for cost of living, economics, things here and there. So people would be like, Dallas is doing great. There are so many people here in business here. It's booming in a solid way where across the country, it might not be the same. Businesses are shutting down. There's poverty, uh, too many taxes, fill in the blank here and there. So that's the problem. Some places are super strong. Some places are terrible. Um, as far as the recession, as far as like, are things going to get to that spot? I don't think so. I really don't. Um, it's a different time too. like the markets are different. There's a lot of 401ks under the stock market holding it up. Uh, I do think certain markets are going to get hit hard. The ones that don't have good economies, good weather, the taxes are too much. They're not business friendly. Like in my opinion, too much restriction is not good. You want some rule and some law to keep order and protect, but people want freedom and they don't want to be overtaxed. So if you're too loose, people will run wild. If you're too tight, they're going to get out of there. I feel like people that can find a good balance, that's where people won't want to be. Um, but the truth of the matter is what I think people have to get back to basics. They got a budget. They can't overspend. They got to work hard. Like they got to be mindful, man, because we're running up debt uh, too quick. People don't want to work quite as hard as they used to because they got, you know, some free money. People get to work from home now and like working from home, honestly, is a luxury. Yeah, you can get more done. You don't have to fight traffic. You don't have to get up and get showered every day and do all this kind of stuff here and there. So you might even get an hour or two back, which means you could be more productive when you want to. But people take that and they take it the wrong direction. Um, I have more concerns about something big, meaning like war or a power grid collapse or something like that. I don't think I don't think the financial industry in itself is going to fall back on itself. You know, the 2008 crisis happened because mortgages didn't perform and they put the economy in a hole. Mortgages are performing fine because the regulation is so hard. If you get a freaking house, you can make the payments. Now, what people lose their job and be foreclosures every now and then, sure, but is it going to be catastrophic like before? No. Um, I just think that, you know, we got to correct what's good going on with old school tried and true behavior, which for me is hard work, bringing value, taking care of others, running a budget, tighten up your spending and get it back on track before it busts. But I do think some places are going to get hard, hit harder than the other. Um, but I think we're still okay. I, I have more concerns about big stuff than I do about economic collapse here. Um, but good or bad, you know, my philosophy is always wake up early, put your head down, work really hard, take good care of people, good economy, bad economy. That's a pretty good solution. Mm. Yep. A hundred percent. So, okay. Okay. Dive into the wild takes. Like what are, yeah. what are the wild takes that you have? Wild takes like what? Like for like, like, you know, like the war and stuff like that. Like, oh, like, like oh, oh yeah. Possibility. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. So you're like, yeah, what? What's what's the conspiracy theory st side piece? Okay, cool, cool. So I'm not one of those weird QAnon people. I'm not I'm not polar either way. I'm pretty in the middle guy. I just lean a little bit more towards self agency, meaning like I don't want to rely on anybody. I just want to be able to take care of my own stuff. So that's how I build sure. build my life. Everybody needs somebody for certain stuff here, and that's not what I'm saying. Whether it be family or your religion or stuff here, and they're great. But you don't want to be. The, the seesaw doesn't want to be tipped to that side. It needs to be tipped to your side. So what do I think will happen? What I think is going to happen? I don't like the climate uh, politically with other countries. I don't love what's going on with China. I don't love what's going on with Russia. Uh, I just think there's a lot of there's a lot of friction there and there's a lot of lot, lot of good, good going on in these countries, you know, including the U.S. They're just they're interwoven so much that if something good goes down, there's going to be a lot of issue. Um, it just, it, it affects everybody's economy so much, but I don't like, I don't like the climate. Um, I don't think the U S right now has a lot of respect from the outside world. It's the way that it feels. Um, you know, other than that, 
I don't know what the dangling carrot is next. I don't think it's going to be another pandemic. Hopefully not. Uh, I don't know what's going on with all this weird alien talk. You know, I don't know. I don't really care. I mean, if there's aliens out there and they come and they zap us, like we can't do nothing anyway. So that doesn't really bother me. But it seems like there's something weird and crazy every year, whether it's like the COVID stuff hit and then the Ukraine stuff. And then there's just a lot of like uh, independent fundamental expression right now. Um, I don't love a lot of that. I'm not against it, meaning like people can be who they want to be. They just don't have to force it on everybody else and make everybody else do it here and there all, all the time. I just people would I wish I wish that the temperature and the climate of society would calm down a little bit and like people just be a little bit more like middle of the road. I actually am a big fan of Bill Maher. So a lot of people don't love him. But I like Bill Maher because he's middle of the road, but his show is really, really badass. What I love about him is like, dude, he calls a spade a spade. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican, a Democrat or whatever. He holds everybody accountable. But he's the type of dude that like he's not going to go deep either way, but he's just going to be honest about the stuff that's overkill on both sides. And this is what I want is people to be able to get back to healthy debate, which is like, dude, we can agree to disagree and still be cool and keep it moving. Everything doesn't have to be dramatic and crazy all the time. So I wish that piece would come down. Um, I just, I don't try to project too hard, but I just don't love the trend and the feeling and the energy of where everything's heading right now. So I don't know what's going to happen. I obviously always hope for the best. Uh, you know, I'm a Christian man. So I always tell people turn to the Lord and be with your friends and family and do all that. That's the number one thing for me. Um, but not everybody's a believer. I understand. And that's on them. But I just think people got to get back to basics, man, which is just be kind, healthy communication. Don't judge so hard. Work hard. Just some old school tried and proved principles that we all can agree on. That'll get back to the basics. But there, there sure seems to be a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, a lot of noise. And I don't think that ultimately normally leads to anything good. Mm. So. So narrowing in on a specific audience, like for like millennials and Gen Z, like how do you think they're progressing and like what, what advice would you give to them, you know, as they go into this, you know, this world and build themselves up? Yeah. I mean, I think they're in a great space because the digital space is really awesome. I love technology, dude. I'm building an avatar so, for myself right now. I'm voice cloning myself so I can do faces, YouTube videos. Like I, I, I love it. Um, the digital world creates such an opportunity for the younger generation that I want them to maximize it and not be a crutch. Meaning like you can do everything from your phone or computer 24 seven, like the opportunity and ability to crush it like this is out there. That's the great thing about technology. Um, the downside is if that's all, you know, and you're younger, that's how you were raised, it can also be a crutch and a disservice to somebody because they can't get something so quick. Um, like, dude, you can't always just go to Amazon, do Face ID and get something in your house the next day. Like, it, it doesn't teach patience um, and it doesn't teach people, like, you know, how to, how to work through things with survival skills because it is so easy. So I would tell people to have their perspective of, like, it's such a huge upgrade and you have so much advantage over people and, and, and generations that were before you because it's so fast and linked so quick and it's also there. Um, but don't let it be a hindrance, meaning like it's still okay to do some old school stuff. It's still okay to work hard. It's still okay if it breaks down to do stuff here and there. And I think what I notice the most about the younger generation, I would say like sub 30, they really lack face-to-face and communication skills. Like when I get somebody at a lunch who's a younger person and they're wanting to be in sales and blah, 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 and I go to shake their hand and go face to face here and there, they don't have that good skill because everything is on the screen. So it's easy to chat. It's easy to go on IG. It's easy to DM. But that in-person connection is what's sticky, but it also is what solves a lot of problems. And it's where adults step up. So I don't want that gap to be there. I think they should do both, like maximize technology and rip it and play it to you your advantage, but don't ever get away from like belly to belly, face to face and communicating eye to eye. We were made that way to connect that way. And I find that sometimes the technology piece, it get, get, gets in the way, you know, I mean, I have a son who's 18, he's fixing to uh, go to Baylor in August and, you know, he's involved in all that, but I purposely teach him. Like I purposely make things hard on him sometimes to make sure that he'll build up enough muscle to be ready. I make him, 
shake my hand, look me in the eye, talk out loud here and there. Because you can't protect all the time. What happens is when you get out in the real world, dude, it's tough. People do not care. They will run over you. Society doesn't care about your feelings. Like they're going to go. I tell everybody, it's like, if you've ever not gone in New York City, go to New York City, drop yourself in the middle. And it's like, game on, horns, music, people, this, that. And you're like, oh my God. It's like, dude, if you don't pick up the pace and get with it, they'll run you over. Society is like that too. So the younger gen has to be ready for that. Meaning like you got to You got to still know those skills and learn those skills and get those skills. So you don't get run over when you get out to the real world because it could be a shock. Um, but I think the new generation, dude, it's got an edge, man. It's got an edge like no other. And I love it. I think in 10, 20, 30, 30 years, cars will be driving themselves. Uh, there'll be all kinds of like AI stuff out there. I, I look for, forward to it. Um, I just don't want it to handicap anybody. And I think that's what it does so sometimes because people grow up through it and that's all they know. So when something breaks down, they immediately freak out. There's no patience. I can't get this, blah, blah, blah. They got to work through that piece to make sure that they know how to handle it when it happens. It's not an if, it's a when. And sometimes I see some weakness in those areas. Yeah, no, for sure. And with, with the younger generation, I feel like there's like a big gap between the people that are utilizing it really well and excelling faster. And then those, you know, the younger people that are more lost, less patient and, you know, all those things that you kind of, uh, that you kind of went into. Yeah. And honestly, man, I, you know, I put that on the parents. I put it on the parents too. Like the parents allow it, right? The parents allow it. So you got to find a bad balance. You're like, yeah, dude, everybody loves their kids. They want their best for their kids. They want to protect blah, blah, blah. But if you allow your kids to just be like sheltered and protected and all technology and stuff all the time, they get to a place to where that reality hits them and they're not ready for it. It's a problem. It's a disservice. So like, you know, you don't have to have them doing military pushups in the morning at five o'clock, like craziness, but you can't have them fully protected either. Neither one of those is healthy. You got to have a balance. And so this is the downside of society, but I blame the parents of like, you're in charge of your kids. You can take away the phone. You can ground them. There can be consequences. Everybody needs a stick and a carrot. Like there's some old school stuff here and there. Uh, now, at some point, people get to their own age, 18, 20, 25, whatever, whatever. Like parents don't really influence anymore. They just guide and love and try to be there for counsel and things here and there. But like at those growth stages when they're young here and there, it's it's good, um, you know, to make sure and encourage the development of those skills within a human being as they're growing to make sure when they hit a point to where like something happens, they don't freak out. Uh, and I've seen it a few times being a parent here and there, but luckily, you know, I like it. I think it's healthy. Hardship is healthy, dude. Don't ever run from pain. Like I had a tough time in my life and I was going through some stuff and I went to see a psychologist. And one thing he always told me is like, when it comes to pain and tribulation, you can't go around it. You have to go through it. And it's such good advice because the only way to get through the storm is to go through the storm. But if your kids never get a chance to go through the storm, because as soon as the storm hits, they run away for it, or they patient or scared or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Like they're not going to be prepared for the next storm. Um, and so I think part of that is the healthy part of like making sure that they get through some small storms because storms are going to come for forever in life intended, unintended, and you got to be prepared for it. And too much, too much nurture and protection, um, is not is not good for people because when they get older and they get in the job and they get everything going, dude, storms come all the time. It's just how do you handle it between your ears? And if you don't develop that and encourage it, uh, it can be a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, t- I totally relate to that. And then sometimes uh, for me, uh, when things are going like too easy, like I create storms in my mind to just kind of like bring myself <laughs> back to the present. Like, you know, I'll, I'll think about like my parents dying or something like that. And then it's just like immediately, it's an immediate yes. shock of, uh, of just like, you know, gratefulness for like what you have and like, you know, yeah. how you're, you're still so close to being in a place of lowness that, you know, you're, you're ready to keep it's, going. it's perspective in your mind, man. It's pain and gain. I tell everybody like you should find whatever the chip is on your shoulder to your point when things are going good or whatever that keeps you going. So like in theory, if you ever watch the Tom Brady documentary where it shows him on 30 for 30, where like he's, he's talking to the, to, to, to the guy about how he was picked 167th or whatever, you know, and nobody believed in him. It's like, dude, no wonder he won seven Super Bowls. His chip was like, you passed on me. Um, right. Whatever your chip is, find that to keep you going. And then when it comes to gratitude and stuff, find pain, reflect back on like, 
a much harder time in life or the fact that other people have it way worse than you. Like we're complaining because they got our Starbucks coffee wrong or my iPhone can't pick up the Wi-Fi or Amazon, right? Um, I tell everybody perspective is everything, dude. It's everything. Like I've been to jail twice, two small things, one funny college thing, this, that, and the other, but both times are 24 hours. And I will tell you, it changes your perspective on life so fast you won't believe it. Like a hot shower, just a piece of pizza, being like in, in back at your house away from all the stuff. It's amazing how quick things can change with your perspective quickly. What you don't want is you don't want people to have to experience all of that all the time in order for them to change. You want to try to keep a chip so to keep you going. And you try to want to look back to the bad times and the pain to have perspective to keep you in line. So you don't actually have to go through that anymore, but whatever works for the person, make it work, keep it working, but it's important to have those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. So what, what do you think are like the top three things that you like, you know, set for your 18 year old as like a foundation for, you know, his growth uh, through his teenage years? Uh, so, I mean, the, the, the things that we're teaching him is to be honest, to do the right thing. And then always know in the back of his mind that we're here for him and we'll protect him and help him. Don't be scared to come to us when things go wrong. And that's what we leave him with. And he knows his job is to make good grades and, and, and not get in trouble. Other than that, do what you want to do. But also we don't have concerns about him because we've raised him correctly. His behavior has been good. He's never really gotten out of bounds. And if he does, it's okay. We all make mistakes. I was a way worse kid, dude. I didn't make good grades. I was skipping school. I was a class count. My ADD had the best yeah. of me then. Right now, I just flip it. And I put my ADD into an industry where I can maximize it. So Hunter, my kid, has done an incredible job. He's great. But it's like, dude, if you tell the truth, right, and if you follow the rules, and then when you mess up or you get out of line, you're honest with us and help you correct and get back on track, these are three things that people need to leave with. And if they do those three with that mindset, they'll be okay. And that's what we're leaving him with going into college. Of like, hey, just do, do, do these three plus make your grades. You're all good. Yeah, 100%. Well, Brian, I think that about wraps it up on my side in terms of questions. Uh, I, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. And, uh, you know, you shared a lot of value, a lot of, uh, a lot of good strategies and, you know, laid out a lot of things that, uh, that are definitely going to provide our audience with value. Good, man. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you guys for having me on. For the folks on there that want to follow me, get some more advice. All my handles are Dallas Mortgage Man. Uh, website is dallasmortgagenews.com. So always happy to help anybody I can with home loans, love language tests, whatever it is. You guys reach out to me. I'm happy to hook you up. Let's go.